Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today I interview Martine Prechtel, who's an author and so much more than an author. He's a teacher, a musician, a farmer, a cook, a silversmith, a horseman, and, and, and so much more, including a guiding light for many of us hoping to live as true human beings. He's got a new book called Rescuing the Light, Quotes from the Oral Teachings of Martin Prechtel. His teaching now happens at his school in northern New Mexico. The school is called Bolad's Kitchen, and the name in itself is a riddle that, over the course of the interview, lights the way to wisdom. I deeply admire and love Martin for all the work he does, and I'm delighted to share our conversation with you. One note before we start. Martine doesn't use computers and doesn't really like phones, for reasons you'll hear about in the interview. Toward the end of our conversation, our connection cut out, and I didn't have the chance to thank him on the air. I'm happy to do so now. Thank you, Martine, for your words and your wisdom. Jump up and live. You know, today, today we're going to talk about rescuing the light. And it's interesting because it's a book you didn't write. It's a book you... That's sp- right. That's yeah. I talked it. <laughs> you know, what I do best, make loud noise. Well, I did write it in a way, you know, but I didn't really sit down and write a narrative book, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you, 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 your students, you asked your students to remember some of the, the things that have stuck with them, that have stayed in their, their heart and in their yeah. memory, and send it back to uh, you. What, what was yeah, it like to get that reflection? Uh, well, no problem. But most of it was very common I mean, you know, I have so many students, and a lot of the people would come to participate. You know, I don't know, people are funny, you know, and a lot of the people that only been coming to Bullock Kitchen, the name of the school, Bullock Kitchen. So... They, some of them are younger, you know, and some of them haven't been coming as long. So they're always intimidated by these old fools that have been coming for 15 years. But they haven't learned anything, you know. The young ones, no plenty. And so the young ones wouldn't, wouldn't volunteer anything. And I said, no, that's the one I want to hear from you, man, because it's the one that's smacking you so quickly, you know, and you're feeling it so fresh. And these other guys, you know, they're all hard-boiled and everything. And so a couple of the people start sending stuff in. And, uh, well, let me preface this all by saying that um, originally I actually didn't ask for quotes. I was writing my own quotes down, you know, little tidbits, because I was trying to um, give some hope to the people in a sort of Bolakishian way. But they ended up this enormous, gigantic teaching book, which I was writing one anyway for, like, uh, you know, 2023. And I said, no, this is not going to happen. I'm just going to get off in all of these gigantic, you know, explanations, and they're not going to have any of these small little things. So I said, okay, kids, you send me what you heard me say that has, you've held on tightly, that make you uh, get through the day, you know. 
And so <laughs> half the people sent me things I never said. You know, like <laughs> stuff my grandfather said, my grandma said, Benjamin Franklin said, Rumi said, you know, or, you know, people who I've quoted, you know, Goethe, you know, or Nelson Mandela or somebody. And um, I said, well, I didn't say that. Somebody else said it. And then, so, the, but they thought, you know, instantaneously, Martin said it. And I said, oh, this is how this happens in this country where everyone all of a sudden is stealing everybody's stuff. They probably don't steal it. Somebody else attributes somebody else for having said it. So that was kind of comical. Because a lot of the things I said I, were Eleanor Roosevelt said. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> getting really high class here. I guess so. so. Then, uh, <laughs> then there were some people sent me their entire bleeding notes. And I mean, this is a, a serious documentation, you know. And beautiful, but all paraphrased. There are no, you know, nothing I said is in there, just what they thought I was talking about. So that was not what I was asking for. But it was so nice of them to send it along, you know. Yeah. And then and go to the trouble of organizing, you know. And then some people sent things in that were like the titles of workshops I did in like 1987, you know. And strings of them, I said, Oh, this really weird stuff. You know, I don't even remember saying that. And um, then all of a sudden, uh, people did start sending in a little this and a little that. And then this one guy broke the dam from Southern California. He's a preacher man. He's a really nice guy. He lives in a very uh, Hispanic barrio in uh, Len Bahia. And he, he sent in, I swear, this guy sent in like, wow, I think like 400 very exactly written down, obviously, you know, paid attention to how I said things, sayings. And so I used what he, he sent in to just the backbone. And then from that, I just kept adding what people uh, would send in that was pertinent to the, to the subject. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things, of course, I, over 5,000. Uh, I had no idea I was so noisy. I mean, it's five, <laughs> over 5,000 things that didn't, you know, repeat. And so <laughs> I'm like... Oh, my God, this is really embarrassing, you know. But, uh, well, you know, I talk a lot. And I, you know, I mean, and I don't teach from a syllabus, and I don't, uh, you know, I just teach from my heart. And so I say a lot of things on the spot on stage. So some of these people have remembered this. And so I thought, you know, uh, there are other students who don't remember anything. I mean, it goes in one ear and out the other, but they're good kids and they're good people, you know. And so I thought... I'm going to make this book so they can hold it and they can keep opening it, and then the rest of the people in the world, too. So I got a couple of students, you know, had a grudge about that, because they were like, oh, man, you're going to give all the secrets of the universe to the to other people. I said, well, so what? You know, what's the big deal? Well, you told us not to go around telling everybody everything. No, I told you it was to learn the stuff before you go around pretending like you understood what I said. Because <laughs> it ends up being a game of telephone, you know. And you, you hear what they think I said, and they're telling people, so, oh, I didn't say that, man. Let's not be putting that around town. Like, I'm the one that said that. So, yeah, you know, it was pretty great. It was, it was good for me and good for everybody else, but it was, it was also kind of quite comical. But I really had to work hard, you know, in order to uh, ship-shape a couple of those things because they, they had a lot of modifiers backwards, you know, saying exactly the opposite of what I was trying to say. And that's what they heard, you know, because their mind often bent the nail because they wanted it to be a way that they'd always heard it. And that's not what I was saying. I was saying something that was probably pretty radical. So, yeah, it was interesting. So, there was, I guess, when you first... And then, of course, the copy editors, the copy editors <laughs> couldn't believe it. You know, we had huge fights with them. You can't say this. This isn't English. I know. It's oral, man. Come on. <laughs> you know, you're going to criticize a football player when he yells. You know, he's just, 
coming out of my mouth. But there's a beautiful uh, was, there's a beautiful quote where you know you say uh, they say I don't speak English very good. Well, well, English is not very good to speak, yeah, right? And you talk that, about it as a as a say people. Some people say the English uh, those people don't speak English very well. I said, but English isn't that very good to speak. You know, English is an old you know, proselytizing language, so I go on and on. You know, so that's one of my things I could have gone off on like a three-day, you know, spiel. But um, <laughs> my normal diet drive. But, but yeah, no, it was. It's true. And, and language is a wonderful thing, you know, but it's, it's extremely approximate, you know, no matter how you cut it, man. So, well, one of the... Uh, the story. Yeah, one of the things I love that you do is you, you try to force English to be delicious and you try to make it into music. You try to make it what it's not wanting to be, a, you know, a colonial tool. Yeah, with, uh, you know, varying success. But yeah, we do our best. But I'm not the only one, you know. That's a lot. Of, I don't know if you ever, you know, you probably traveled around quite a bit, you know. If you go different places, you know, where English has been the colonial tune, you know, and they're traveling down everybody's throat. Like if you go to New Guinea, you know, or um, Borneo, or Australia, or any of these places, you know, or um, parts of Polynesia, or, or the Caribbean, you know, the Caribbean, you'll hear all of these uh, versions of English that are really actually quite good English. As I always start Bullet Kitchen off, you know, the first session playing all of these uh, really old-time Calypso guys from Trinidad, and nobody in the room can understand what these guys are saying. I said, no, they're speaking beautiful English, man. And it ain't just an accent, it's just a usage that's extremely creative and delicious and full of the rhythm. Man. So it's like when you realize, you look at people's faces, you know, and you see the, the muscles that have developed and how the imperial mind makes you say a word a certain way, then pretty soon, you know, no wonder you're depressed because all the deliciousness of all the, these sounds and meanings and stuff is just like lost. So it's important, you know, to keep all those things alive, no matter what language you speak. I mean, it's happening to all the languages. I mean, Chinese is falling apart as we speak, you know. It used to be a wonderfully amazing, imaginative cultural language which was full of all kinds of peoples, but now it's, you know, one size fits all, man, you know. So that's my enemy, one size fits all. Well, that's... that's <laughs> Mediocrity and one size fits all. That's <laughs> Bolad, isn't it? That's Bolad That's... To exalt yeah. everyone and not make everyone the same. Yeah. Oh, you read the introduction. You're the only person. Okay, very good. <laughs> Lovely. Bola <laughs> la man. Yeah, amazing, amazing guy. Did you ever read anything about that guy? I, I read your introduction and then I looked him up, which is, I know, not the right way to do it. And, well, and suddenly I'm in, you know, Empires, the Ottoman Empire, <laughs> the Mongols. Yeah, and, I'm and, learning uh, about Mon nomads. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a guy whose name is Allison. Unfortunately, he just passed away last year, and he's the first one. I was in the British Museum. You know, I always like to go where they, they got the books they want to throw away in the British Library. You know, and I buy all these crazy books, and there's this one book, you know, and it was talking about Bulat, uh, this guy named Bulaka, who was there. You know. Uh, the the calligraphy of the Chinese people at the time were confusing with Marco Polo. So this is, the word is Polo, and, Pol, and Polo's last name is also the same thing because it comes from a Persian word for steel, for, uh, for Damascus steel. And so 
that a lot of the stuff that they, they, uh, they attribute to Marco Polo actually was done by this guy named Bola Haka, who died in Persia, which is where Polo got it all. And uh, here is a scholar, you know, a scholar very dry. He's not like me, you know, it's all this data and all this stuff. And I'm reading this, and I'm saying, wow, this is really amazing. So uh, when I got into it, I started reading, and Hubilei Khan had sent him to parts of Amdos and, you know, northern, what's not Tibetan. And he was setting up all these, what you might call, bioregional, self-sustaining, um, organic gardens for everyone to be able, so they didn't have to depend on central government in order to... Uh, survive food-wise, but still could count on the central government to support that. And I'm like, wow, this is like, you know, 12, 27, man, what the hell, 1,300. And um, so then I just got me all, you know, amazed that the world was not as they had taught us in school, you know. And like Hubilei Khan was, was best friends with the king of Toledo in Spain, you know, by mail. And they were both looking at the stars at the same time with these Persian astronomers, you know, and they're seven, nine thousand miles away from each other, you know. And so I was like, oh man, Bola Akka was a, a chief minister and he was a chef. <laughs> All right, this is where it's at. Cool. So your head general has to know how to cook, man. You know? The keeper of the cooking pot. Mm hmm. Bariarch. Yeah, I love Mongols. And and you talked, and you talked about the um, when you whenever you, when back when you used to do workshops when you were traveling I think it was like ninety two weekends a year, you would always oh Lord it's more than that it was ninety two round trip flights a year sometimes there'd be, there'd be two or three of those things a week I remember one time being in Ann Arbor and then being in. Uh, it has Paw Paw, Michigan, and then being in San Francisco, and then Berkeley the same day, oh. the same exact day, you know, and then just showing up in, like, uh, Berkeley, like, too late, and then had to move the gig up the hill, and we did it to, like, two in the morning with loudspeakers on the street. It was like, oh, what a nutty life, you know, <laughs> crazy, you know? And my poor wife, I just, we just married, and we're going all over the damn place, which was great, and you know, people were wonderful, but, man, we're never at home. You know, we never, when it came time to have children, I was like, no, I don't think this is going to happen. Like, this is too much, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. We went around a lot, you know. Can't believe it. Well, could we you... had seven sets of luggage. <laughs> I had one in, in London. I had another one in Portland, Oregon. I had another one in upstate New York. I had another one in New Orleans. I had another one in San Francisco. And I think uh, one here at the house that was always packed. So a lot of times we wouldn't even pack. We'd just fly to this place and unpack what we had there and repack it and put it in there. And just keep going around like, <laughs> so crazy. You know, in our own house, no, we had bought and we had never unpacked. And it was until six years after we bought it that we actually kind of moved in because we were only here like three months of the year. Not in a row, but, you know, three days here and a week there. And it was like, Oh, Lord, you know, this is uh, working for a living, man. I tell you what, that's crazy. So my horses were even looked at me like, nah, that's not you, man. You know, <laughs> you? You know some other ghost, you know, come over here. And, and it took him like three days before I would stop smelling like the rest of these other guys. And they said, oh, hey, man, how you doing? Cool. He came back. And they, they wouldn't let you get on them, would they? You, you talk they about would, that. Man, they would. They, they said, you know, you're, you're some cattle thief, man. You're out my back, you know. You're not even getting close to me. They mooned me, man. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I got the next book tells more about that, so. and the third book tells a lot about that. That's exciting. But yeah, they were wonderful. Then. One well, of them's still alive. He's still out here. He's thirty-seven years old. Really? <laughs> yeah, right here. I can see him right through the window where we're talking. You know, Punky's still out there, still alive, old stallion too. And all the horses that are here, except for two, are his children or grandchildren. They all generated from him. Yeah, he's a beauty. That's beautiful. Would would you tell us why it is that you you love that Bolad was a chef? Because I think one of the things that's that's wonderful about your teaching, if if somebody just found this book, they'd think that it might be primarily about language, but you you exalt and uphold food and music and doing. Oh, and that is language, man. What do you mean? Food and music. Well, you know, there's a lot of things, Eric. I mean, it's like I found over the years, you know, I lived in different places and I lived in Guatemala for a very, you know, I, it wasn't at this point in time, not that long. You know, it was in a decade and a half, but it was not uh, you know, at this point in time, you know, all my life it was but it was all my life at that time and i realized that um you know it's just so much stuff people have had to bear over the millennia and one of the things that uh survives or what should i say that keeps generating new forms but doesn't lose its origination is food and another one is music and both food and music, if you look into, like, for instance, what's now known as Turkish food, people in America will say Turkish food comes from the Turks. Well, there's no such thing as the Turks. The Turks are an amalgamation of Greeks and Pontic peoples and Scythians and Lhas and Bakhtiari, Persians, Azeris, and all sorts of, uh, you know, Semitic peoples and Turkic peoples who are not a people, but were, you know, you have Ottomans and Osmans and these guys and those guys. And all of their foods and all of their musics collide in this incredible uh, place, you know, along with Kurds or Indo-Europeans and none of those related to any of those other guys. And when you start to talk to the people about their food, all of a sudden the history just starts getting laid out because they'll serve this at this time and that at that time, and this will combine this that came from this tribal uh, experience and this comes from this time and this tribal experience and this plant wasn't even available to those people but it was to those guys and so you see that um, this uh, whole uh, majesty of the way people live like when they come to see each other the first thing they always do is feed one another even if they don't like each other you know modern people are really lost in this but and you know you'll even go to um, hostile territories you know where people are fighting to this day you know and a guy will get up and say, have you eaten, please, please, you know, and before we talk any of the other stuff, you're going to eat, you know. And the thing is, is if people accept other people's food, then there's automatically the quality and the possibility of peace. Whereas people who are worried about other people is hating each other, they won't eat each other's food. And so peace is always established by eating together, which is why feasting has always been such a great peacemaking, uh, you know, sealer. And then the thing is, music is very much, too, because it's extremely, you know, before all the electronic mania, there's uh, music is uh, very much the, uh, the root of people's origins and goes very much with the, music, with, the, with the food. And all of that, of course, uh, when you boil it down and really look at things, I mean, 
modern people are really, really out of line when looking at the world because they're always thinking of cultures as national boundaries and cultures as races. And none of those things uh, count as culture. Culture is totally wound up with how you think, how you, how you carry out your life every day. And that is encoded in the way, the way you think is encoded in your language, in the use of the language with one another. So everything that you eat and everything that you play musically they can somehow survive sometimes, and that bit of the language of people can, can, can keep from going over the cliff of the homogenization of uh, imperial cultures over the time. So when I heard that this crazy guy in the past was, you know, a cook, but he was like this majestic, really revered character who didn't even carry a weapon, you know, he was still had, he had the you know, rank of an upper general, but whose whole thing was to keep people from fighting <laughs> instead of killing one another, you know. And um, uh, with uh, people who have been uh, radically, radically demonized by the West, you know, the Mongols, all oh, the terrible human beings. No, the Mongols are not a terrible human being. There's, and they are not at this time either. But uh, this is another story. But the point is, is that as soon as I realized that when a culture based its capacity to make peace with one another based on language, based on the music, and based on the eating and the plants and the animals that they, they killed and used to feed one another by honoring the way they go about it. And I said, oh, this hits right at the heart of what it means to be a human being. So I was just uh, totally fascinated by that because I, I knew that uh, as a young child where I grew up with tribe carrots people, they're very much, you know, the food things, well, it's really deep. And the Mayan people very much so as well, at least in the time that I was, you know, involved with living in those places. So, yeah. So when I heard about Bolad, uh, I said, man, what a guy. But then the thing is his name, too. His name means uh, this particular type of steel, which is, you know, has to do with uh, all of the Siberian people's idea of what a human soul is made of, which comes from meteorite, because that kind of steel is meteoritic steel, you see, which is... A, a nickel steel from the stars. And so, you know, this just took off into all this um, capacity to remember that, you know, Europeans didn't invent steel, they didn't invent the wheel, the Chinese didn't invent the wheel, they didn't invent bronze, they didn't invent... Who invented all those things were nomads who were not settled and got all their stuff from Siberia. And they were, you know, bringing it into these both of these places and also Africa. And that the history, I mean, this is not like conjectural history. I mean, it's all written down. It's just nobody's teaching it that way because they don't want to hear it. But uh, so I thought, well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go over there and tell everybody they're wrong. I'm just going to say, look at the beauty of what we as people who have been overrun multiple times, our ancestors, all kinds of places they're from. And yeah, there's this little food here, you know, in Odessa, Texas. <laughs> These people are serving in this little restaurant. And they're playing this weird music, you know, comes from the North Pontus, North... Uh, north of Black Sea, in a place where everybody's saying, y'all, and ain't he a cute little guy, and all that. And you're saying, wow, this is really amazing. Where does this come from? And so I always look in the originations of things, and food, and music, and language, the origination was the closest to the people's surface of skin than anything else. Everything else, whoa, man, it's blown back in time, you know. So, And as soon as people start looking, they find so many things in their own family, and but the, the thing to do is to not stay with your family, not stay just with me or what I got or my ancestry, because you can't get an identity from your own ancestry anymore. That's, that's passe. And, and indigenously, they don't either, which is you know, very radical thought, because it's politically 
being a high official on account of it, you know, being a political chef. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and you touched on something you said that I, I guess has set some people off, which you, you say, I'll probably, I'll see if I can get it right. Right, You're not going to find your identity and your sense of self by looking into your own ancestry, if you're, you know, by looking back to being Celt or you know, yeah. whatever it is that... It's all fabrications, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's no such thing as Celt. The Celt were invented, the idea of Celt was invented by the English. You know, the Irish never called themselves Celts, and the Scots never called themselves Celts, and none of them were from Scotland or Ireland. They were all from North Spain, which came before that, from what's now known as Pannonia in Hungary, and then from Asia. All of these Indo-Europeans that came in around 1000 BC were all come from Asia, mostly from Taklamak and Desert. And so the... Um, the idea of saying, oh, this is my ancestry, you know, so I can lean on this. That's what makes wars. A guy turned me on today. He's from Sudan. He was a, he was a, a tribal person from South Sudan. He worked for the uh, UNESCO, I think he was. And I had run into him in the bush in Guatemala. And I was always talking about ancestors. I was a young guy, you know, blowing away. You know. He says, you know, you can't just talk about ancestors without starting a war. You're going to maintain warfare if all you get is your identity from your ancestors. What you have to understand is that a real ancestor will tell you that you're not descended from ancestors that are human, but from the land itself. And, you know, at the time, I, I thought I understood what he said, but later on I started grooving on the fact that indigenosity doesn't come from the people you descend from, but the, the people you descend from, if they were indigenous, descend from something that's not human. And they know it, and that's what they attend to. So, uh, you know, I mean, most natives... They know that and want that, but they can't keep their land base, you know, dealing with an American imperial society who are also victims of the same thing, but much farther back. So they don't even remember what they've lost. And, you know, their depressions are not very uh, clear to them where they come from. But, yeah, very interesting. You know? Anyway, there's a lot of sayings in this little book, I tell you. And um, it's kind of uh, interesting because you could be like a college course. You can just keep going through and trying to reflect. A lot of Bullet Kitchen says, students have said to me, not a lot, a few, very few, but some have said that, you know, aren't people just going to scratch their heads and walk away? I said, so far, no. So far, they're very engaged. So we'll see what happens, you know. Because I, I lean a little bit in some places going a little farther than, uh, <laughs> you know, just a couple of lines. So it takes some studying to try to understand what's being said. Oh, I like those longer ones. <laughs> Yeah, well, you like Bullet Kids and them. It goes way longer, man. <laughs> 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 it, goes, it goes on and on. And way longer. Oh, I tell you what. You know, the thing is that people want the world to be... Uh, I don't think want it to be... So it does, It's almost as if they want to die without any too much uh, you know, disturbance. You know, they just want to get to the end instead of keeping something going beyond themselves. I'm not interested in that one way. I'm interested in keeping things going beyond ourselves. You know, in, in the unlikely piece at Chucha McQuaik, you have this beautiful passage about how in indigenous language, 
what you really want to do for for any question or anything is you start creating a home for it. You start mm -hmm. rapping and and you know. So in some ways, your whole book is explaining what that unlikely piece is, and I think the book is like five hundred pages or six hundred pages. It's it's beautiful, mm -hmm. but it creates that world. What was it a challenge to do the the smaller pieces? You know, things that were aligned well, in a sentence. I mean, it's not a challenge. It's just that to know where to hit the hammer to do give the most gift. You see. It's like I'm a silversmith, too, you know, and I teach that in my school. And when I was young, the old man would teach me how to hit with the hammer so that I didn't miss. So that what I did did not crack the piece I was making, but still altered it enough to turn it into something beautiful. And the thing is to hit at a mark in such a way that it pierces the heart in a way that makes that hole grow more beauty instead of breaking it until people have, are despairing. So it's it's basically what I do. I mean, I I love it, you know. But my only fear is, of course, is reducing everything to a, a, a tiny concept or a saying. So you will notice that pretty much everything that is said is, you know, not is pretty much you know got a whole lot more to be said. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be. You can't just stay there. It's got to go zoom. You can't just say, oh yeah, be nice and everything will be fine. It's like oh. There's a whole lot more to this than just that, you know, but there is somebody thinking these thoughts. And so the way I kind of look at it is, is that the book is like a big old bunch of sticks off a very beautiful tree. and But the sticks are lashed together kind of like a raft to keep people from drowning till they can get to the tree. You see? That's beautiful. Yeah. I do my best. You know, I've tried so many things there. <laughs> you know, my eighth book. I got two more coming up. Uh, well, I just keep, I'll say, okay, someday the people will love the magic that's in the root of things. And they will love these things, and they'll do this, and they'll do that. And, and uh, the language is, you know, our modern language is so problematic, the way it's been used, and tear to pieces. And the orthographies are messing up everybody's brains, and the lack of them. So, I don't mean lack of brain, lack of orthography. I just, uh, I love the musicality of human capacity, but I just hate to see everything being so terribly wasted. I love the the image of the, the, the teachings in it being like that strike of the silver. Um, mm. The first time that, the first time that I heard of you, I, I didn't hear your name. One of your students told me a story that that they had heard in your teaching, and and it almost brought me to tears, and I I just was so moved by it, and and I said to her, I said, oh my gosh, I want to share this with everyone, and she said, no 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 no, Martine says that's when I've heard your name for the first time that that there are certain times for certain stories that that you don't tell them except when the time is right. Um, that you don't get to have a story just because you got to hear it. And that only made what I heard more beautiful. Um, right. But there was something right. about that that strike that just opened your heart. Yeah, I mean, the thing with people is, is that they're, they're incredibly capable. But the way it's set up now is um, people are taught to um, be looking for something that they, you know, they can't have or they can't make on their own. And never having experienced uh, a tribal way where everybody is good at things, 
uh, they run around feeling pretty desperate and just want a vacation. You know, in other words, they always want to be vacating where they are, their work and everything. I mean, I remember reading uh, a Pilgrim, uh, you know, a Puritan account of their first uh, seeing of Native peoples in uh, the northern, you know, northeast coast, what's now the northeast coast of the United States and Canada, and being you know, making fun of and being totally uh, astounded by the fact that the women, when they get up in the morning, had these societies where they went to go work in the fields in the summers, and how actually enormously proud of their fields they were, and also how proud they were that they worked so hard, and how proud they were that their work was to them a del- kind of like a delicious event, and um, that, you know, working is a, a, supposed to be toil, it's supposed to be something you're supposed to be getting out of, you don't want to do it, you just get money and then sit around being depressed, getting more and more food. But it's, they were totally blown away by it. So, uh, you know, and the Indians just uh, couldn't understand why they couldn't understand. And then, and of course, they exported, the, the Europeans exported their, um, their depression to the point where everybody now is feeling that if they have to make any efforts to do anything, that they've somehow failed in life. And then they sit around doing, now what do we do? Well, let's just go to Ziwataneho, you know, and get a, go swimming. And and then you feel, you know, you're not engaged. You don't know anything you're surrounded by. You don't know the plants. You don't know the animals instead of having the joy of being alive. So a lot of time when you're teaching, as a teacher in a way, you try to hit a mark, but not to be always right. Because people are intimidated if you're just, quote, right. You know, you don't want to be right. You want to make something to grow, even if, you know, it makes the teacher look like he's a clown, which I'm very good at. And so a lot of time with stories, you know, I, I found that people, they can still kind of like want stories, but they don't really want the old ones. You know, they want something they can see themselves in, like Sartre says, is, People just love to see themselves dramatized. Well, in my class, they hate it. <laughs> they don't like to see themselves. Oh, my God. I got a letter yesterday, a couple of them, actually, from the last stuff I was doing on Parsifal. And they said, oh, my God, I've been doing this for a year and a half. I all of a sudden realized you weren't talking about Parsifal. You're talking about me. And I'm the one doing all these things. And said, oh, gee, oh, and this has been going on for a millennia. And they had this huge epiphany, you know. I said, yeah, but I'm very gentle. You know, I'm not going to, like wonk you in the head because if I do that you'll run away, you'll close all your shutters, you'll, you'll be you know, you'll be scared instead of slowly learning, slowly learn. so you can't pull the cork out on, you know, 2,000 years of repression and expect a person to be able to have the nervous system in order to, to see the beauty of something like Bola Aka was doing in those days you have to go slow but when you do go you've got to hit the mark, man, you know you go, Bang! going to make beauty. Even if it's very simple, even if it doesn't bring you Nobel Prize, you still just got to hit it just right, you know. So you don't always do that just right, but you do your best. And so these little sayings are like little hammerings on a bracelet. You know? Yeah, yeah. They're there for a reason. They're not just out the abstract bullshit, you know, it's just thrown out there for the hell of it. It's very, very, I have to hate to say it, I mean, not calculated in a manipulative sense, but they're all in the spirit of that, you see. They, they create, I think, movement and fluidity and change and just a, a kind of liquidity. They create a net so you can walk from one part of the universe without being eaten by the dragons that, are underneath <laughs> you, you know, that came in with. You know, so you can walk right across. 
Maybe I can oh. share with you one of those of, of you working on me, and it might be interesting uh -oh. to people to hear. <laughs> so, my son and I, over the the winter, we found in a a ditch away from our house that it had once been a farm dump, and so we spent the winter just pulling up glass and garbage and old wow. ratty bed frames and things. Yeah. Yeah, sure. and, and I was putting them, you know, in in bins and taking them to the garbage and everything like that. And then I, I re-encountered your work and I was like, this is this is just the same thing. It's this drive for like purity and cleansing. And, and what I really sure. should be doing is is creating a hummus out of this. You made a, a fence out of the bit. Yeah, and I gotta, I gotta make a, you know, the 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 sand didn't want to be glass, that the iron didn't want to be bedposts, and so yeah, so somehow that's gotta, I've gotta sit with it instead of thinking, oh, if I just clear out this this garbage dump, then I'm okay, right? Instead, it's then everything's flat, and I'm sitting in heaven, and there you go. Yeah, yeah nothing happens. Yeah, purity's a problem. Yeah. Did I lose you? No, you didn't lose me at all. My phone cut out here for a second. Oh. I'm on the Mexico phone. Okay. All right. Can you hear me? All right. Now I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, it's that Iron Man getting after us. You know? That's right. Well, you're absolutely right about all that, man. I mean, that's, you know, I have, uh, there's a saying in this book, it's talking about taking a person's, uh, like when you're walking down the road and you start thinking an evil thought about somebody or something, you know, that you're not going to say out loud because it's going to make you look not, you're not PC, you know. But how you can take that thought and look into the etymologies of the words and actually bless the thing that you cursed. I don't know if you read that one. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and that actually started by what just what you just described to me. There was a couple of students of mine uh, walking up the road from here from where we live. We live in kind of a ranch here, you know, by a lot of New Mexicans have uh, their little ranchitos next to us, you know, all around. And there's one guy, uh, Willie Garcia, a long time when he's passed away, got arrested. So, but he uh, he was uh, one of these shade tree mechanics, and he used to fix everybody's cars way back since, you know, God, since the 1930s, you know. And um, he would have a whole row of wrecks, you know, I mean, <laughs> of, you know, hunks of iron going way back before he was even born, man. So he would have parts, right? And so there was one of my students was really ragging on these dumb Mexicans, you know, and how the filthy they are and this, that, and the other. And I said, hold on just a minute, guy. You know, you don't know what you're looking at. I said, you go over and talk to those people and find some out. So he goes over there, and right, the little kids were so great, you know, and from the family. They came out of the house, and they were talking to this guy, you know, this racist uh, knucklehead. And they jumped in one of the cars. Ah, this car used to belong to my great-great-grandmother, Eleanor. And this is the day to take it to Santa Fe. Once a year, she only saw Santa Fe three times before she died. And so they would get in there, and his little sister would be sitting there, you know, in this old wreck, pretending like they're driving, you know, to Santa Fe. <laughs> Which is, in those days, you know, it's only, what, 40, 50 miles away, right? So in the old days, it was like going to Paris around here. You know? <laughs> Nobody ever saw it. Just a few people knew where it was. You know? And so then, then they jump into the next car, and this belonged to their son, Leroy. And this is what he took all the time, but then he rolled it. He got killed over by Grants, but they brought it back. And then they go down the line, down the line, down the line, down the line to the last Mazda, you know. 
And every person who had owned each one of those cars, they knew the history of what their life they lived. So these little kids, that was their history. They jumped from car to car and tell, this happened to my ancestors, this happened to my grand, and this happened to my daughter, and this happened to so-and-so, and this is when they run into court. And so that guy was like, oh, my God, I was knocking these people, and they got it. I can't say that about my own lines. So I said, so take all the words that you used to say, whatever it was you said in your head about these people, and learn the real roots of those words. Like the word Mexican, for instance. What does it mean? And so it means a person from Mexico. So what's the word Mexico means? It's a country. I said, no, Mexico is an old Nahuatl word from the, the Texcocan people, which means people who come from the clouds. It's a Mexico. And so the Mexica people were the origination of the Azatlan people who lived, you know, and you learn all these things. And these guys are from Teotihuacan and blah, 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 blah. And then that word got used by uh, Spanish people who changed the J to the H, H to the X. And we now have Mexico instead of Mexico. And then and they take each one of these words and find the etymology, the originations of the cloud, of the this, of the that. And pretty soon now, make a blessing for these people that you curse with all the etymologies of all the words, make a poem that puts them back into your mind with, with a good heart. And, you know, some of the people could do it, and some of the people just, you know, run away, but we don't care. <laughs> then that's exactly what you're saying, you say, because everyone says, oh, this piece of junk here, i got to get it out of my life. And yeah. like, Who made that junk? The, our culture made that junk. <laughs> you know, how did they get there? Did they want to be there? Did that beer can actually say, throw me on Martin's front, uh, you know, ranch, you know? You didn't say that. Where is it coming from? Where is that aluminum from? Of course, it's from Iceland. Everybody knows all the aluminums from Iceland. How does it get from Iceland? How does it Because the hydro, they use all the you know, steam from the volcanoes to smelt it. Blah, 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 blah. What is aluminum? Aluminum is the most common mineral in the universe. You know, there's more metal aluminum than any other uh, metal in the, in the world. And blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Why? You know, and then you just learn all these things, and then you all of a sudden stop cursing, and all of a sudden you realize what you look and your watch is made of collodium, and your iPhone, and it's, ooh, that's such a vast place. But you become educated, you know. And there are cultures who feed their tools, you know. I, I do rituals here to feed tools, and you got to know the story of the tool. So the simpler your tool, you know, the more possible it is for you to know, you know, the history of your tool, and also make a prayer for the spirit of the, all the different components of your tool, all the iron, all the wood, all the sharpening stone, this, that, and the other. Not leaving it at that. Like, where does the iron come from? All the iron in North Europe that became steel originally came from grass roots. It's called bog iron, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because the grass knew how to pull the the iron out of the sea and make it into uh, something they could smelt with the peat itself, you know. And people, they don't know that, you know. They didn't learn that, you know. And they learned that Europe was totally flattened of trees because they were trying to get enough weaponry by making steel from this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. And, and, I mean, the immense history that's in every little detail. But people live dead. They're surrounded by this. And they say, well, if I could just clean it all up, then I would be fine. That doesn't mean it shouldn't, that we should have lots of trash. I'm not saying that. It's just that if you live in a uh, culture that's intact, you don't have any trash. You have everything transforming into something else, you know. So it's really amazing. Yeah, I think you you mentioned that there's no word for trash in tutuhil. Not you have to use a, a Spanish word or an English word if you're going to actually the concept of trash. The closest thing they would have is no, I don't know, no, it's not even. I mean, the only word they could say is uh, "aís," and "aís" actually means 
Oh, see how to begin. It means the the finished aspect of of a thing's existence. In other words, like when, like oh, I can you know, a little more graphic example. It's like the word for feces is pama, which means stomached. It means it has it is food that has now no longer. Uh, being eaten, but has now been stomached and now becomes another form that gives life to something else. So it's called pamach. And raiz, which would be basically what anybody would use for the word um, trash or refuse, doesn't mean trash or refuse. It means something that ceased being what it was in order to become something else. And you know, so it's like when you bury a person, they're no longer a person, but they become something that gives life to something else. You know, and it's just in the language. And as soon as you stop using your language and start using the word basura or the word trash, then all of a sudden you've bought into what the other person is uh, you know, putting upon you. But if you do like I ask people to do and look into the root of the words that you're using for trash, you might come up and realize a whole other thing. It's like the word grief. I mean, you probably read the other book I wrote on grief. Yeah. It, the original English uh, usage of the word grief had nothing to do with being sad after somebody dies. It has to do with suing somebody for damages, for, for the damage they've caused you. And, uh, you know, it slowly becomes this other thing. So if you start looking at the etymologies, a lot of times you come up with something terrifying, but a lot of times you come up with something that's really amazing. Like the word trust, for instance. The word trust in English comes from the word tryst, and the word tryst comes from a shrine that was always put up in uh, boundaries in waters, you know, uh, in rivers and lakes where there was an island which was considered never to be owned by a human but to be owned by the spirits that ruled both. And that where people could meet and they, would, they could trust that they would not be attacked or killed and that all pieces uh, treaties were made. So the trysting place of lovers or the trust that people have for one another or the mistrust or the lack of a tryst, is in all those old sagas, you know. So if you know that word and you look at that, you say, oh, life is a lot richer than I thought, you know. You can be doing a lot of things to learn. You know? so, so I'm just hoping that people will understand that, you know, from a small, tiny place, a, a large story can generate. From a small, lived life, a very giant life can actually emanate, you know. Instead of having to constantly conquer where no man has gone before to wreck it one more time so that it goes somewhere else. It's already there. Yeah, exactly. But Elon Musk, you know. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. They call him, that's the thing, they call Jeff Bezos Bezos. You know, he was raised in Albuquerque, for God's sake. Yeah, I know him. You know, his dad was a Cuban. His name means Jeffy the Kisses. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of lost the kiss part, but, you know, he's Amazon slaves. Oh, yeah, there's there's a kind of there's a what it's not in any particular one of the the teachings, but there's this invitation that runs across the book. That's it's just wonderful. It's sort of like you know you as a person, you as a human, just get out of the center. You aren't the center. Live for nature. Right. Live for the holy. Live for a time that's not now. That's other than your own. Right, see the yeah. beauty of something you can't have and celebrate it. It, it. I just wonder if people ex read this and experience relief from that kind of imperial. Well, some people, I hope, do. I don't care, you know, what they because I want them to just do it anyway. Because you see, the thing is that uh, to become a person that's worth descending from, 
matters to an indigenous person. And you're not going to be worth descending from if you've got everything you want. You're going to, there's a great old Navajo saying. It says, um, uh, Karis have it too. He says, ah, you know, I'd be rich if I wasn't part of the world. <laughs> so being part of the world, I always have to give this to that. This God needs this, and my relatives need this, and Grandma needs this. Um, everything I make has a place already before I even make it, instead of being able to hoard it and then die depressed. And so the idea is, is that you're a great cattle thief or a great horse thief in the old days. You never kept your horses. You never kept any of your cattle. You never kept anything that you got, nothing that you grew. There was a great, when I was little, the first time I ever saw this, it blew my mind. A guy, deer hunters would come into a village where I grew up, you know, People think New Mexico is like part of the United States, so think again. And they will come in with the deers on their back, you know. A couple of guys will have killed a deer, and some will have killed the elk, and they will have, you know, cut him up pretty good, and they will come down. And they will yell this specific word, you know. Yeah, hey, Ashkola, you the, oh, hey, Oadi, you know. And all these ladies will start running with knives, you know. <laughs> Same as two, three of the old days. And, you know, it's pretty scary to see a bunch of ladies running at you with knives. But luckily, they were on our side. And... They would come, and then the man would lay his uh, deer down and offer to the people. And the people would come, and when they were done, there would be nothing left of the deer except the skin. And then the man would very uh, dutifully go to the sacred house, all the chikas, uh, kivas, and give the skins to all these old, you know, society heads and medicine men who would tan them up, you know. And these guys went home just with their weapons. And no meat, no hides, no nothing. Everything went to the people. But the people for the entire year, every time they grew something in their gardens or in their fields, because they're big farmers too, you know, they would send food over to the ho- to the family of the hunter, not to the hunter, but to everybody he was related to. So his hunting fed his entire family by what these other people had grown and given to him. So this back and forth. So you could never take what you hunted for yourself. The first person that would touch you would then become your relative. And then you would uh, go hunting together the next year and hopefully have the luck again. And when I first saw that, it just totally blew me away. You know, I was just like, wow, that's right. And then when I lived in Guatemala, they weren't, you know, there was very little hunting left by then because their land was so, you know, torn up. But on the coast, but uh, the traditions and all the stories said the exact same thing. I couldn't believe it. I said, oh, there you go. See, there you go again. And so in, in a society like people have today, it's not that they're greedy. I don't see the modern society as greedy. I see them as scared to death because they know nobody else is going to provide for them. Nobody's going to come with a deer on their back and say, take the meat you need. You're not going to do that. They're going to say, no, I'm keeping this because nobody's going to watch out for me. And so everybody's, you know, always looking over their shoulder and getting their own, getting their own, getting their own, getting their own, because they do not believe there's anybody from one side to the next. So that's what my whole thing is about. It isn't that you won't eat, and it isn't that you shouldn't become a person, and it isn't that God doesn't want you to have something. It's that if you're, everyone becomes a gift giver, then you get a, a situation with, you know, the, <laughs> the, plain, the Buddhist monasteries where they call it, you know, Zen, Zen Rummy, you know, <laughs> where everybody gives everybody the cards that they need, you know. <laughs> and they get very frustrated because they can't seem to lose. I'm supposed to lose, damn it. And I keep giving everybody the cards they need, and I still win. <laughs> you know, it's one of these situations. Well, that's exactly what I want. Exactly what I want. And everybody said, well, Martin, I had, a, I had an interview the other day in the Washington Post, and the guy told me, he said, well, you're just a dreamer. You know, you're, you know, do you actually think people will actually do anything? 
So I don't care. It's not my. That's not my job. Is it the apple tree's job to worry about where his apples go? It's the apple tree's job to make apples, and so that's what I do. Where they go, that's where they go. You know, but that's a worthy thing to do because I want to be somebody who's worth descending from. I want them to say that apple tree was the most beautiful apple tree, and you give birth to all these other apple trees and all these other apples, and these people, and these animals, and these plants all lived off that for many years. You know, so I want people to do that. Whether they do it or not, hey, I'm still giving them the apples, man. You know, here it is. Yeah. Do you... Rescuing the light is called the apples. Cut <laughs> 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 ah, And laugh too much is the damn reservation thing, you know. We always laugh, you know. <laughs> well, one of the beautiful things about your teaching is there's a place for joy and hilarity and making mistakes and falling down. Yeah, because yeah. you're trying to be a human being. What's wrong with being human? Just don't make national policy, you know, the stupidities we come up with, you know, we just learn. You, you know, failure is good too, you know? Yeah. How are you going to feed the holy if you don't try to do something? And if you fail, you fail, you know? And try some more, do it this way, do it that way. But um, make your failures beautiful. You know, make beautiful failures. Do things so that even... I'll tell you a story. It's not in any of these. It's going to be in the third book. But, you know, just you between you and me. I was once riding a little horse I had whose name was Amariento, and he was the fastest horse. I swear to God, forgive me for saying it in front of all you big thoroughbred people. This little dinky horse that could outrun himself, man. He was so fast. And I was showing off once, you know, as usual, on this little horse going home from after demonstrating uh, this horse with a whole bunch of a big crowd, you know, in a place south of San Fe. And there was an irrigation canal, which I was uh, put in in like the 1700s, which nobody had ever used, but it was all overgrown with these sacaton, with these big grasses. And I'm coming up the hill, going back to my horse trailer, right? <laughs> I'm and I'm going to go straight through this grass, right? And little did I know there was, you know, a seven-foot ditch underneath them. Whoomp, I disappeared totally from view. <laughs> the horse fell down. I was totally knocked cold. The horse was... Apparently not cold, too, I don't remember, but he got up and ran down the ditch under the grass so no one could see him. By the time I came to, there's this old cowboy, you know, this old guy. He's holding my horse, you know, and he's pulling me up to my feet. He said, wow, that was amazing, son. What the hell was that? Were you trying to do a stunt? He said, no, man, I didn't know the ditch was here. <laughs> he started laughing. He said, you're lucky that you didn't break your goddamn neck. You know, I said, yeah. But let me tell you something, he says to me. This guy told me, I never got his name. I feel sad about it, but he said, Give me my horse back. It was pretty stunned, too. And he says, look, there's two kinds of riders on this earth. There's the ones that fall off and the ones that are going to fall off. The main job that you have is to make sure when you fall off, you do a beautiful job so God is said by the trajectory of your fall. That's what he said to me. You know. And I was a tear in my eye, and then, he, you know, poof, he was gone, you know. For all I know, he was a spirit, you know. And so... I got back on my horse, and I'm still under the grass. Nobody can see me, and I rode out of that ditch, and everybody started clapping, you know, <laughs> like miles around. They were all waiting to see how Houdini would come out of this, the vapor. And I couldn't believe it. And so, and so I was riding along. So I realized, you know, when you're going to fall or when you're going to get bucked or when you're going to lose, you just got to make sure you do it beautifully, man, you know, because that's really what makes the, the holy living and what makes life worth living, you know. Yeah. Not just to get what you want, you know. Job done, just get out of here, guys. You know, <laughs> not me, man. You know, <laughs> it's got to be beautiful. The stove's got to be beautiful. The fire's got to be built well. 
the food has to be cooked in a beautiful way, and it's got to be good thoughts when we're cooking it. We're not going to poison one another with that. We've got to be brave. We've got to be courageous to be human beings, you know, and be beautiful. Because, you know, what, uh, what else is that? That's it. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Martine Prechtel, author of Rescuing the Light, Quotes from the Oral Teachings of Martine Prechtel, here on the New Books Network.